You're listening to the Next Exec Podcast Series with Executive Women's Forum. Welcome to our podcast episode of Next Exec, where our guests, Brooke and Hale, discuss about the SolarWinds supply chain attack that has captured many security headlines this year. Our guests bring a much-needed dose of hacker lingo and chatter to our podcast while they break down the technical details of the attack for our listeners and discuss how the cybersecurity industry needs to be prepared to address these attacks. Hi, Brooke. This is Haley, and I'm excited that uh, we're getting together to talk about the SolarWinds breach since it has been such a big deal in our industry. Hi, Haley. Yeah, definitely. I'm equally as excited, so let's get right into it. Today, we're going to be talking about the SolarWinds breach. And who is SolarWinds? Why do we care? Well, what is SolarWinds? (laughs) What is SolarWinds? According to Wikipedia, it is an American company that develops software for businesses to help manage their network systems and information technology infrastructure. They are headquartered in Austin, Texas, but they do have a number of offices located throughout the United States as well as in other countries. And it looks like they were founded in 1999. And as of uh, 2020, they had roughly 3,200 employees. So yeah, I would pretty, say probably I'm pretty like... sure they have like 400 of the Fortune 500 companies in their portfolio. They do. So SolarWinds has over 300,000 clients, including many U.S. government agencies and, as you mentioned, the great majority of Fortune 500 companies. Some of the bigger name ones that you may recognize would be like Microsoft, Visa, MasterCard, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Sprint, Ford, the list goes on, FireEye. They're a pretty diverse in terms of their customers. They have people in banking, people in healthcare, people in IT, the whole works. And so basically, right now, the important thing to know is that one of the software products that SolarWinds has is called Orion. And that particular software was breached in 2020. And uh, like the Orion's breach was, was a little loose. Yeah, exactly. We should have seen that one coming. Are we sure it's the Russians or was it aliens? But but basically, they reported that breach to the Securities and Exchange Commission, also known as the SEC, on December 15th, 2020. However, they did not actually immediately revoke the compromised digital certificate that was used to sign for things. And they did continue to distribute some malware-infected updates after that for a short while. So, you know, this attack is unlike anything that we've ever seen before, just mainly because of how many companies were affected in the downstream of this. And in, in the past, a lot of breaches that have happened we've been able to see specifically what the hackers did, identify which systems they touched or, you know, what files they got to. But in this case, this breach went on for a while before it was actually caught. And so even more worrisome than that is the fact that these attackers made use of their initial access to some of the clients of SolarWinds, such as FireEye and Microsoft, to actually breach and compromise their systems. And then from there, 
you know, potentially breach customers of those customers and so on. So it just kind of, even though, you know, of the 33,000 companies who use this Orion software, SolarWinds told the SEC that only up to 18,000 of those may have been compromised. But in reality, a lot more downstream customers from that could have also been compromised. So that's the really dangerous part about it. And I think that we'll probably continue to see the lasting effects of this attack for years to come. And we may never know the full extent of the damage. Yeah. I mean, in our circles, they've been calling it a supply chain attack, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, Orion is the software that all these other companies use. So part of that company's supply chain. So even though those companies individually didn't get hacked, they kind of got hacked at the source of a product they use. And it just so happens to be IT like monitoring software, which generally has like a service account with powerful permissions that kind of does suspicious activity on the regular. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this, I mean, we're, we're very lucky that they decided to go after FireEye because if a wonderful security company like themselves hadn't been one of the targets, we may not have known about this for yeah, many We might months. not be talking about this right now. Right. It might still be going on. But yeah, so as you mentioned, Orion itself is a product specifically designed to monitor networks of systems and report on security problems. So they're literally supposed to be doing <laughs> the monitoring and then that software itself was breached. And a really big part of this problem is that the companies using the software have to enable access to all of their networks and everything in order for this software to work, which is the reason that this attack was so damaging. So you might be wondering at this point, well, who did this? You know, who's at fault? The federal investigators and cybersecurity experts are all pointing the fingers at Russia's foreign intelligence service, of course. But uh, at this point, Russia has denied any involvement. Sure, sure. And uh, we, we've heard that one from Russia before. <laughs> the, the, the company that sort of released these initial indicators, FireEye, They previously bought out a company called Mandiant, which is a security consulting firm, which came out with the original Advanced Persistent Threat Report, APT1, on one of China's sort of top crack cybersecurity teams. You know, they've been doing this for many, many years, and you can never say anything with 100% certainty. But when you start approaching 90 to 95 to 99% certainty, and you have enough indicators and fingerprints on it, I think I think it's relatively safe to say that it's probably our, our friends in Russia. I wanted to hop in to talk about some of the sort of like technical details about what made this unique, why it was so difficult to detect. Because in this case, I mean, we were dealing with a crack team. Like, I think something interesting about what we do is like, Blue Team, we're working on security all day, every day, all year in our individual companies. But we can plug as many holes as possible. And all it takes for the red team to gain entry is just one hole. (laughs) So it's difficult to cover all of these bases, especially when they're utilizing some of these sort of individual techniques all together. Definitely. Yeah. and, And you can just tell this is a very professional group because of how much insight and intelligence went into their actions. Yeah, probably not just your average, you know, basement script kitty or anything like that. Sure, yeah, yeah. So (laughs) this is like people, this is their day job. They come into work and they they crack into uh, U.S. companies. 
The initial breach, apparently, just to give it like a really baseline, is that this was announced by FireEye and sort of the indicators of of the malware and operations and tactics, techniques, procedures was announced in December of 2020. That's when we all started scrambling to uh, figure out if we had been compromised. So in December of 2020, FireEye announced the initial details about this breach of SolarWinds Orion and pointed to an update in March of 2020, which included the actual malware that compromised individual customers. And then in the following month, SolarWinds CEO mentioned that they've found now breach activity as early as October of 2019. And then two days ago. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so, and they were in there from October 2019 to March 2020 before they pushed their update that gave them the ability to break into individual customers' servers Mm -hmm. and network environments. And I just checked sort of recent news. It is May 20th that we're recording this today. May 19th, the CEO now said they found evidence going back to January of 2019. Oh, man. So, so yeah. who knows? The next we hear, it could be further back than that even. Yeah. And I mean, it's pretty common for these large-scale breaches and really any individual breach for the attackers who have been in the environment for years. That's yeah. really not that uncommon because they're sort of scoping things out, seeing what sort of information they can get or what they can do. And that especially shows the patience of the team that they were, you know, Going that slowly and then from October to March was probably heavy development work on the malware to make sure that worked as soon as they updated. Mm -hmm. But uh, they took their time. Yeah, they took their time and they did an excellent job. So basically what they did is after compromising SolarWinds environment, and it seems like they were utilizing an exploit of the Active Directory Federation service, ADFS. You can, Mm -hmm. if you compromise the ADFS server, you can issue tokens to uh, <laughs> illegitimate users that say like, oh yeah, this user logged in with multi-factor authentication and their password, but it's really just mimicking a token that's issued after those things get passed to the Federation server. Mm-hmm. So once that's in there, you kind of can just log in with whoever. And you know, I'm sure they carefully picked their targets and moved one by one, but they were able to do that within SolarWinds. So that's probably why they were able to get access to the code signing environment, which is what was able to push this malicious update to all of their customers in March. So that update basically hid itself inside of a a normal DLL file that's used by Orion, but it now had all these new features that included sending commands back from their command and control servers, as well as reporting system information the types of antivirus and endpoint detection response that are running on the machine so they could sort of pick targets that they actually wanted to dig into based off the sort of risk of security products in the environment and that sort of thing. Yeah, and like I mentioned, it it sounds like they specifically targeted like Microsoft and FireEye so that way they could target their customers after that. So they were pretty smart about the way that they went about it. Yeah. And I mean, they had 18,000 customers to choose from. (laughs) So (laughs) I imagine there was a, there was a scrum meeting where they've got a list of US companies. And it's like, who do we actually want to try and dig into? It's like one of those old school, like detector whiteboards where they have like circles and arrows pointing at like the most ideal candidates. Sure, sure. Yeah, exactly. So it seems like 
from the latest report, because FireEye did a lot of consulting after the fact, it seems like they really narrowed it down to about 50 companies where the vast majority of the activity was happening, because that's, you know, hands on keyboard. People are looking through file systems, networks, trying to figure out what they can glean, what would be good targets. The Department of Homeland Security, they definitely were going for email accounts of officials in that department, which makes a lot of sense. But yeah, from what I was reading, there was a number of government agencies that were impacted, but some of the ones that we know of are the Treasury, Commerce Department, NASA, the NSA, the CDC, and the list goes on. So pretty concerning for any U.S. citizen to know that those types of agencies have been breached at this point. Yeah, because we, we still don't really... You, you know, you have to try and piece together what they were after by the sort of forensic evidence that's left there after the fact. A lot of times there isn't forensic evidence in a lot of organizations. So it's kind of just a mystery, but we're very lucky that FireEye sort of found them and got this, Absolutely. got this whole thing started because, you know, again, it could have been years and years and there could be another software that's already supply chain compromised by someone else. And uh, we'll find out when we do. <laughs> you know, 2020, people had a lot of time on their hands at home. So yeah, it's unfortunately likely yep, at yep. this point. You, you can let your imagination run wild what they were doing once they got in. What was difficult to detect this was because they used a lot. To me, it makes a lot of sense to just like name things kind of innocuous legitimate sounding things in legitimate sounding folders. And a lot of malware just sort of doesn't take that step to just name it, not like, you know, a string of random characters or <laughs> like harvest credentials dot bad or, or something like that. It, it really blows my mind how often we see that. But in this case, you know, it was lots of names that just sounded like they should be there or related to Orion software. So, mm -hmm. and also the, the cloud hosts that they were uh, sending C2 traffic to and exfiltrating data, they used the same cloud hosts that SolarWinds use. They, oh. they named the host names very similarly. So the, the reason they were so successful with their network traffic, which is often where we detect this type of command and control activity, is they were using not only the exact same cloud host as SolarWinds, but also matching the host names of their cloud hosts. So even if an analyst in one of these companies saw like, oh, that's weird, sending telemetry to some different cloud provider than what is normally, when it's using the same, you're like, oh, that's probably okay. Another thing that made that extra difficult was they their, their malware dropper, which is sort of like what pulls down things they want to use, ran entirely in memory, so no evidence of it in the file system, and also, rather than just execute things outright, it would replace a legitimate file and name the dropped file, whatever that legitimate file was, run it, then replace the legitimate file back again. So if, oh, someone, was wow. looking, if someone just saw the process name, they'd be like, oh, that's fine. I mean, it's weird that it's running for this strange reason we haven't seen before. But when I look at it, it's a it's the same process. And you know, again, if, if they were looking deeper, they would see the hashes don't match and, and all these other things. But that's why you need a, you know, talented forensic analysts to figure that sort mm -hmm. of stuff out. So on that note, I mean, being that this was as sophisticated as it was, 
it's safe to say that in terms of what could have been done to prevent this, the options are slim, but we're still going to talk a little bit about possibly things that could have been done or that could be done in the future to maybe prevent this type of attack. And one of the ones that I've been seeing is that Orion software was closed source, so they didn't have any extra eyes auditing the software. So one of the things that I've seen out there is that potentially in the future, more companies should consider having open source software so that they can get more eyes on it. It's not to say that an attack still couldn't happen, but the more experts that are out there looking into these lines of code, the better, because somebody might recognize a defect or a flaw that somebody else might have missed. Sure. Yeah, I've, I've seen that mentioned in a few places and, and it's very difficult to do. I know, it, especially a lot of us who work in these big environments, it's it's really hard to operationalize security really well. But, sure is. But at some point, some code review portion got missed where someone would notice that, hey, this this code wasn't there before. And what is it doing there? Who put it there? And right. Yeah, I try not to get too sassy about like, oh, why didn't they just X? Because I know how difficult security is and we're all dealing with like different issues in our various environments. Right. But but that's definitely one I keep hearing. I definitely think too, I mean, in the past, there weren't so many hackers out there trying to do malicious things. So security has not been implemented in the software development lifecycle in the past, as well as it could have been. I think that a lot of companies are making a lot of strides to improve that, but it still could always be improved. So another thing I did see was that companies could try to harden their build environments against attackers better. Like you mentioned, the the developers there were not using the best security practices. Some of the things I saw was were that they were possibly using the FTP protocol rather than SFTP and publicly revealing passwords, all things that, of course, we shake our heads in shame, but then who out here hasn't done that at some point? So, I mean, you know, like you said, I try not to like side-eye them too hard because at the end of the day, we're all just trying to get our jobs done as fast as possible. So, but, you know, going forward, if we want to prevent these things, we'll have to try harder and try to implement security into these practices the best that we can and share our secrets about how we are protecting our companies, you know? Yeah. I've heard a few places, but also I know this is, again, one of these long-term vision strategy type things is that the phrase gets thrown around a lot, but zero trust identity and access management policies Mm-hmm. Again, that's like that's a ground up sort of rework of a lot of organization systems and tracking like who needs what privileges and how to sort of limit those privileges every time they're offered and accessed and approved and authenticated. It's a whole <laughs> thing. But anything that an organization can do to loop in their IAM teams to move toward that kind of policy, as well as, you know, the type of security detections where you're seeing users log on on strange systems they haven't they haven't before or right. you, you know multiple behavioral users based can, exactly I exactly think. so there, yeah. there's there's a lot of like those detections that would at least give you something 
it's still going to be an uphill battle because a lot of times you don't have enough context to truly figure out why something is happening. But yeah. uh, And plus, I mean, you never know too, like, especially in the environment right now where so many people are working remote mm -hmm. and working at times they may not work. I mean, I know personally back whenever I was going to the office, I never would have just logged in at 8 PM, but now that I'm at home and I'm like, Oh, I forgot to do this. I'll just log in, you know? So if they start using these behavioral based systems, then all of a sudden I decide I need to send an email and I can't get into the system because I'm blocked. I mean, that could be a problem as well. So. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the attackers might time their attacks to be during work hours and, and, and utilize the same machine with the same users. So, I mean, right. it's, it's really just hoping that they make a mistake, uh, sort of like operational security mistake. But the more types of those types of detections you have in there, the better your chances. Absolutely. We appreciate you listening to us today. We hope that you enjoyed it. Maybe got a little something out of it. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thanks y'all. <laughs>